it's actually misleading to say that these growth hormone genes are, quote, longevity genes, because really they're growth factor genes. They literally encode growth factors. So the side the effect loss. is lifespan. No, it's the loss of growth factor signaling that gives you an extraordinarily extended lifespan with no fertility. And actually the most outstanding, uh, amazing example of an animal that outlives her reproductive capacity is the human female. Welcome back to another episode of The Proof. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, and today's guest is Professor Charles Brenner. Charles is a leading global expert in the biology, chemistry, and medicine of NAD, the central catalyst of metabolism. He currently works at City of Hope in Los Angeles as professor and chair of the Department of Diabetes and Cancer Metabolism. I want to quickly share with you a brief backstory on how this episode came about. Long-time listeners may recall an episode I did with Professor David Sinclair on aging, what he believes causes it, and what we can do about it. Recently, Charles, today's guest, published a very detailed rebuttal to David Sinclair's thesis, the title of which is Sirtuins Are Not Conserved Longevity Genes, published in the Journal of Life Metabolism in October 2022. In the spirit of staying open-minded and hearing a different perspective, I invited Charles on to discuss this. I think Charles raises some very interesting points about the science in this field, points which I asked him to expand upon in this conversation, and that I'd like to see discussed with David Sinclair, something that I would be happy to host should both parties be willing. Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder to please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in from. Your support is greatly appreciated and enormously important to this show finding its way into the ears of more people. And now, my conversation with Professor Charles Brenner. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. 
If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Professor Charles Brenner, he actually does exist, not just a Twitter personality. Welcome. I do exist. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's excellent. I've had, I don't know how many requests to have you on the show <laughs> over the last probably three or four years and, and we've engaged on Twitter and I think we mm-hmm. may have had a phone call at one point and um, you've always been really generous with your time and I think you bring an interesting perspective to the sort of aging longevity discussion. We've got a lot to get through today. today. Okay. <laughs> um, I was reviewing everything I wanted to kind of touch on and I might have bitten off a little bit more than I can chew, but we'll see how we go. I want to cover everything from metabolism, NAD+, the role of uh, NAD coenzymes, evolution, genetics, um, this idea of conserved longevity genes, um, sirtuins, sirtuin activators, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. But for folks who... The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Right, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a, a two-hour or so podcast allows for, right? Okay. Which is a bit different to, to Twitter. It can be harder maybe to fully express all of our ideas, although you do a great job on the threads. Thanks. So perhaps, though, just to, to begin here, mm-hmm. where do you fit in to the conversation around aging and longevity? How have you sort of... Uh, becomes uh, an expert in this space and someone that's interested in metabolism and and aging and age-related diseases? Sure. Well, first is um, I work on metabolism. I work on the central catalyst of metabolism, which is called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide NAD. It's a set of uh, four coenzymes. These are small molecules that carry electrons in our cells. So if you picture... Here we are in Santa Monica, probably a third of the automobiles outside of this apartment are electric vehicles. There's a battery pack and there's copper wires that goes from, go from the battery to all of the moving parts. And there's high energy electrons that move along those wiring, along the wires in order to, to, to run, run the machine. We're living animals. Uh, we run on high energy electrons as well. We don't have copper wires, 
we have NAD coenzymes. So I, I'm interested in NAD coenzymes as the carriers of the, essentially of the energy of life. Um, as such, my research touches on health, disease, um, regulation and dysregulation. Um, many years ago, almost 20 years ago, um, my group discovered the uh, vitamin activity of NR, so another a vitamin precursor of, of NAD coenzymes. And one of the things that we did quite a long time ago was we showed that provision of NR to yeast can extend one of the yeast models of lifespan. Um, even on high glucose medium, under conditions in which yeasts don't have a very long lifespan. And so I showed that that was an activity of NR. Um, one of the unique things I think about our group is that we didn't say that this activity of NR in yeast um, meant that um, NR is a longevity drug or that even that the yeast model would have that much to do with animal aging. So I've always been interested in aging. I don't consider it to be, um, in 2023, a very high-tech, actionable aspect of, of, of hum the human experience. Um, most of the reason why we live into our 80s and 90s in this country and other uh, developed countries is good hygiene. So we, we dispose of um, toilet water very effectively. And we have fairly clean uh, food supplies and we try to keep a, a, a clear um, water supply. And we most of us don't have jobs with a lot of occupational um, toxins and, and hazards. And so we can um, live into our 80s and 90s and, and beyond as opposed to earlier in the 20th century uh, when people had an average lifespan of 40 or so. We've kind of doubled that, but that's not really been due to molecular biology. So how how is your view there different to, to, I guess, some of the other prevailing ideas out there that exist around longevity in this field of aging biology and what things may look like going forward? Right. Well, there's ideas and there's stories. Right. So there's, um, I think the evidence-based ideas about animal longevity are that animal longevity is very polygenic. And which so, means, which, which basically means that it's not controlled by one or two or three or five genes. Okay. So then, that, so the idea of a longevity gene you're saying wouldn't make sense. Um, there, there are, it's nuanced, right? The, this is, this is why, um, gifted storytellers can convince people of things that are not really evidence-based. So is there such a thing as a monogenic animal longevity mutant? Yes. So, um, you can go from worms to mice and, and, um, and, and rats, and you can find 
that single mutations in growth hormone and growth hormone receptor pathway genes can give you very long lived worms and very long lived mice. Okay. So, okay. So that's true. Would it, would it not be the case then or possibility that humans could have certain genes okay. that if mutated or edited could somehow increase our lifespan? No, you're about to hear something really, really bad about, the, <laughs> about these mice. Okay. We, we can leave the worms aside there. I mean, they're, the, the, we're, the, we're talking about worms that have only 1000 cells in them, ne nematodes, right? So they're, they have, um, they're hermaphrodites. They're, they're very tiny and of, they have very limited mental capacities. Relatively simple compared extremely to extremely simple, uh, animal. So let's, let's just talk about the mice. Okay. Which so, comparatively speaking is much more similar from a genetic point of view to, to us. Yeah. I mean, so ballpark 20,000 genes, there's a head on one end. There's a, um, you know, Tail. can we say a, a butthole, uh, in, yeah, in this podcast? Say. Sure. Yeah. Well, you just so, did. The, so, so there, there, there's, there's a front and, and a back of, of, a it's a nice way of putting a, it, of a, um, of all, uh, vertebrates, right? And so mice have essentially the same body plan as humans. Mice only live two or three years, so they're not very good agers. Humans are extraordinarily good agers. We can, we can talk about that as well. But um, the thing about these mice, they were not initially discovered by molecular biologists. They were discovered by very peculiar people that are called mouse fanciers. Okay? So... I don't really like having mice in my house, um, but there are some people that keep mice as pets, essentially. And, and um, they like mice of different colors and different sizes and that have different coat color. They're very interested in coat color. Um, these mice were called Ames. There was an Ames dwarf mouse, and then there was a Snell dwarf mouse, and then there was a Lil... Uh, mouse. And, um, these, these mice appeared, um, in, uh, cages and practically would not grow. Right. And they actually had to be separated from their parents and from brothers and, and sisters because they are dwarf mice that, that are deeply defective in their growth pathway. So you shut those growth pathways down to some degree and then they, they live a long life, but they're living like that. They are infertile. They can't maintain their body temperature. They can't fend for themselves. Okay. So it's they not can't really... attract mates. And even if they could attract mates, they can't produce sperm or egg. Okay. They have a miserable experience. They would be bullied to death if you and and eaten essentially if they were kept in cages with their um their brothers and sisters that didn't have two defective copies of of the particular genes so um if you want to say if, if do you want me to say that there are extreme cases in which their monogenic longevity genes yes there are um mice 
that have lost both copies of, of genes in pituitary pathways. They're either growth factors, growth factor receptors, or transcription factors that control this pathway. And um, they can live an extraordinarily long life. They don't get cancer at the same rate. Um, they don't have cardiovascular diseases at the same rate, but they can basically not protect themselves and they, they can't express themselves as normal adults. Right. So there's okay. a big trade-off and you're, what you're saying Enormous is that's trade-off. not something that we would aspire to experience ourselves. No. And the thing is, it's actually misleading to say that these growth hormone genes are quote longevity genes because really they're growth factor genes. They literally encode growth factors. So the side it's effect the is lifespan. No, it's the loss of growth factor signaling that gives you an extraordinarily extended lifespan with no mm-hmm. fertility. Okay, so let me let me ask you a question. I had mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Nir Basel on the show, and he mm-hmm. has done some research you would be familiar yeah. with looking at centenarians and longevity genes. And my understanding was that through his research and possibly some others, so what you're explaining is a very extreme scenario. Yes. Where clearly there's a trade-off here that none of us would sign up for that. Right. right. Let's live to 120, but let's live a miserable life. That doesn't sound like fun. But his research looking at centenarians, I was under the impression that these are people who have made it to 100, maybe 110, and that they've found some particular genes that they have, which have led them to think that they might be protecting them and maybe quote unquote longevity genes. Right. So, um, right. So the work of Barzilai and, and, and other people that are looking at centenarian genetics is basically consistent with a polygenic, um, scenario. And, um, they've not found very strongly acting single genes that confer this phenotype. They have some candidate genes um, that um, they think might slightly modulate the effect of growth hormone signaling or, or various other things. But um, it's, it's a grand overstatement to claim that human centenarian genetics has identified any strong monogenic longevity genes. That's just not true. Um, from the worm and mouse literature, there are examples of loss of function genes, again, in growth hormone pathways and insulin, uh, like, uh, growth hormone pathways whose inactivation, right. Leads to very extended and miserable lifespan to the extent that when I spoke last December at, um, what was the name of the conference? The A4M, it's the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine conference. I gave a huge, huge uh, conference talk to about 2000 people. And outside of the 2000 person lecture hall, there's this exhibit hall, right? Where the people that go to the A4M can go up to various booths and people are selling them products and services that are supposed to be to promote, you know, longevity medicine. 
And you know what you can basically sign up for out in the exhibit hall are injections of growth hormone. Okay. So growth hormone is defined as a factor that promotes aging, right? Inactivation of growth hormone genes and growth hormone receptor genes extends lifespan. Yet there are practicing physicians that will give people injections of growth hormone. Why? Because over the course of the next few months, you may, you may gain muscle mass, feel an increase in vitality, look great for a photo shoot, right? So you see athletes and actors that take um, androgens, right? That take steroid uh, hormones, anabolic steroids, and growth hormone in order to basically pump up, right? And some of those things are prescribed by people that say they're practicing longevity medicine, but really it's a medicine to promote a kind of youthful vitality, the genetics of which says that will accelerate your So there's a demise. trade off. So there's a huge trade off. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. 
After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What about looking at other animals that live much longer? So there's types of whales that live to 200 right. odd years or more. What is it about, is it, is it differences in their genetic makeup and the way that their um, cells are operating that separates them from, from us in terms of lifespan? I think no answer would be complete without people saying that we don't fully understand the answer to, to that question. But I think it's fair to say that longevity is an emergent property and not a directly selected property of animal health and well-being. Break that okay. down. Okay, let's us. break that, that yeah. down. So um, animals and other living things are the way they are because of genetic selections, right? So there was a famous um, example from the um, industrialization of England where there used to be a lot of white moths. And then within 10 or 20 years, there were not a lot of white moths and there were a lot of ashy colored moths. I'm sure you know why because there was a lot of coal being burnt, right? And the buildings and the surfaces on which moths like to land became pretty dark, right? So the white moths got eaten and they were not able to pass on their gene set to um, moths that survived well, right? And so there was essentially a genetic selection for a darker color being more adaptive, right? So um, all of our genes are, are subject to these selective pressures, right? But animals are basically selected for reproductive fitness and survival, right? So what you're saying, the genes that we have, each of the genes that we have over time are selected based on them helping us reproduce and survive. Yes. And there and there's not a direct selection for animals to be able to live longer than they can reproduce. Why? Because there isn't. Because the, the what's called Hamiltonian forces, right, which means the the forces of natural selection operate on the ability to pass on a gene set if you've passed on your gene set and you don't have a potential to continue to pass on your gene set, there's not a selection. So what if someone pushed back a little bit and said, well, actually survival is dependent upon the, the young surviving and part of that would it's be protection. affected by the parent from protecting. Absolutely them. true. Absolutely true. So, so, so successful reproduction of the offspring is part of that. And animals have different strategies. It's either high fecundity, which means lots and lots of babies, um, or um, 
good caretaking of the offspring in, until they're able to move on their own, get their own food, protect themselves from predators. And humans are, and actually some of the, some of the whales are at the extreme end of caretaking. There's a huge amount of investment that humans put into our offspring, right? Our offspring are pretty dependent on us for decades, right? So we, we have many fewer offspring than some types of, of, of animals. We put much more effort into caretaking and protecting our offspring. And, and actually the most outstanding, uh, amazing example of an animal that outlives her reproductive capacity is the human female. So male fertility basically um, appears, right, in the middle of the second decade and then declines gradually throughout our life. We can produce a sperm count. Um, and to some declining ability, we can attract a mate, right? Um, female, um, human females reach reproductive capacity again in the second decade. Um, and then the average onset of menopause is at the age of 51. Yet women outlive men, right? Women live, let's say four decades beyond, um, menopause. And so that's been a puzzle to evolutionary um, biologists. And it's been largely explained as what's called the grandmother hypothesis, that it's been so important in human evolution uh, that mothering and grandmothering is so important in human evolution that the um, reproductive, the period of reproductive capability of the human female has been confined from 13 or 15 to 50 or so. And, um, and then she, mom maintains terrific health for decades more because that advantages her offspring and even her grand offspring. Right. So in almost all other species, the end of the reproductive window coincides with the end of life. Yes. Yes. So if you see these Greenland sharks and that can live to 180 or 190, they're reproducing until 180 or 190. That makes me think about if, if we're thinking about, this might be a silly thought, but if we're thinking about approaching aging and trying to increase lifespan, should we be thinking about increasing fertility? Yes. Or as someone asked me on Twitter, should be, we be, uh, you know, measuring maintenance of hotness or something like that? And that's literally... What's maintenance of hotness? Okay, we're using a little bit of uh, American vernacular here, but sex appeal, okay? Sex appeal and reproductive capability. Um, so there's two or three things to unpack here. But um, yeah, essentially turtles, long-lived turtles reproduce the whole time. Long-lived uh, whales and sharks can reproduce the whole time. Um, and virtually every animal has an ability to reproduce throughout its life at some 
declining ability. And it may make up in other ways, like a, uh, a male lion may be able to scare off competition for a long time. So it might not, it might not be quite as powerful as some of the, you know, young males, but if it has a way to maintain its territory, it may be able to maintain its ability to reproduce with, with females. But um, there's a very influential um, geneticist named Michael Rose, who is a faculty member uh, down, down the road at UC Irvine, who works on flies. And he worked on both the uh, theoretical and the experimental basis for aging in the fly model. And he reasoned that because these Hamiltonian forces, the forces of natural selection, are um, not operating after um, young flies mate, right, in the, in the laboratory, he reasoned that if he kept males and females separate, until nearly the end of their expected lifespan, he could conduct a selection for longer lived flies, right? So he kept males and females separate until they were about 90 or 95% of their expected lifespan. Then he allowed them to mate. And by doing this multiple cycles, many dozens, many hundreds of cycles, I believe, he was able to select for much longer lived flies. And the result of those um, natural selection experiments were flies that had many different genetic alterations from the starting flies. He didn't see an emergence of a single powerfully acting longevity gene. He saw alleles of hundreds of different genes because the brain has to work. You know, so if it's uh, normally flies live, I don't know, 40 days or something like that. And he's getting to them to live 60 or 70 days because as he's um, aging them longer and longer, let's say he initially allowed them, them to mate at 40 days. Then he can get some flies that will live to 50 days. Now he's selecting for them to mate at 45 days right? Until he's ultimately selected for flies that can mate at 60, 65 days, something like that. The brain has to work at 65 days. Their sense of smell has to work. They have to be able to move around. They've got to be able to fly. But that wouldn't happen naturally. That's, that's an experiment that's set up outside of nature, right? Um, it w yeah, it was set up in the, in the, so how, how would we have a different gene set? We would have a different gene set if um, somebody decided that um, males and females cannot procreate with each other until um, females are uh, 45 and males are 80, and we were to do then that would then, select for longevity. That would select for longevity, right? And and there would be there would be a bunch of guys that don't even live to 80, right? And there'd be some guys that don't look very good at 80 and can't compete at 80, right? And then, then, then there'd be Mick Jagger, right. right? So it's not a natural experiment, but it would be a way to, to get the longest living people in the population to pass on their genes. But, but what you find in long-lived animals 
is that you find animals. So th this is a, a difference, for example, between the naked mole rat and the house mouse. So by the way, even though it's called a rat, it's about the same size as, as the laboratory mouse that, that, that we all use. So they're, you know, they're 25 grams in weight. Um, they're about the same size, a, a naked mole rat and, and a mouse. Naked mole rat is kind of a weird looking thing with very long uh, front teeth. Um, but um, it lives 10 times as long as, as the mouse. And it has a lifestyle in which um, naked mole rats that are 10 and 20 years old are still seen as attractive to the opposite sex. They attract mates, they re reproduce successfully. And so they pass on a set of genes, um, not just you know monogenic longevity genes, they pass on a set of genes that allow their heart to function when they're 20 years old, that allow their circulatory system to function when they're 20 years old, that give them good cognitive ability and sense of smell at 20 years old. So it's if, all of their genes. If evolution cares about our ability to, to reproduce and survive, survive and reproduce, why do we age through our reproductive window? So why, why is it our cells cannot maintain the same youthful function all the way up until the end of our reproductive window? Essentially, why is it why are we well, seeing they, the aging through that process? What you're you're talking about is you know why can't we age better? And you know we we can age as well as we can age. You know, so um, I don't know. I'm I'm 61. What I do is I try to stay active, right? I don't think that there's no tech, um, you know, that is available to me. There's no you know young blood infusions. You know, there's no evidence basis for that. I guess what there's, I'm getting at, though, is what's happening in the cell. Intrinsically. Intrinsically, that would explain that, that aging. It's loss of repair capacity, largely. You know, I don't know that anyone can fully answer that question. That's actually a really hard question. But um, we have a gene set that puts us together, right? And we reach our maximal, you know, size by around 20, right? And, um, and you know, the, 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 pr the problem is that it's, it's from an evolutionary point of view, as I say, I'm going to use the, the, the term that someone threw, threw at me on Twitter of hotness, right? The, um, Evolution is is basically if you look at at birds, right? You know, bird bird watching is a is a very enjoyable thing, where you have have males that have remarkable plumage, and you have females that um, evaluate that, and they're they're talking back and forth to each other in in very interesting ways, and um, all of that is a very complicated um, set of um, selective processes in male and female brains that is evaluating the other, the, the, part, the potential partner's reproductive capacity, gene set, ability to provide, et cetera, et cetera. 
And those things operate throughout the animal kingdom. And um, it seems to me that um, because here, here's one way that, that, that I've explained it. Um, here, here in, in North America, we, America, we have foxes, right? Usually the foxes are born in the spring and they can reproduce by the time they're about, you know, six or nine months old, right? So a male, you know, less than one year old male and female fox are, are pretty foxy, right? They, they, they are capable. They're long out of mom's care. They're capable of getting their own food. They can, they can identify the opposite sex and they can reproduce, right? And they're going to, if they reproduce at the age of eight months, they're going to pass on a gene set. Now, if they're clever enough and capable enough to go through um, five or six winters, then they will be able to reproduce five or six times. And so they will contribute five or six times more genetic information into the fox gene pool. But the fact of the matter is, if they don't have very good longevity and they simply are able to reach their reproductive capacity, they will be able to contribute their genes to the gene pool. So their longevity is not a directly selected trait. Their vision is a selected trait. Their sense of smell is a selected trait. Their size is a selected trait. Their coat color is a selected trait. Their, um, their brains and their ability to know where the owls are from hearing is a selected trait. So dumb foxes, you know, get eaten by a bigger animal the first time they leave mom, right? So there aren't a lot of really dumb foxes that can reproduce. There's not a lot of blind foxes that can reproduce. There's not a lot of foxes that don't have a sense of smell that can reproduce. But a fox that can't live three or four years can still reproduce one or two or maybe three times. So what you're saying here and you're sort of underscoring is that evolution is selecting for genes based on what can help us survive, reproduce, and then care for our young. And after that, our genes really don't so, care so about especially us. Especially survive, survive the, peri the per time between our birth and getting to reproductive uh, maturation. And, so and then I, once we're at, at reproductive maturation, we're in our prime and then all animals have some type of decline. Some animals are really, really good agers like naked mole rats and humans that can maintain for, 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 for a while, but a lot of animals aren't. What are the implications of, of this? What you're saying, there's no, um, selection for longevity. There's no monogenic, you know, longevity genes. This is polygenic. Uh, what are the implications with regards to targeting longevity when you start to think about it through this lens? It's a hard problem. Um, I, we know that um, 
you we know that first of all we know that age is a risk factor for all sorts of diseases most diseases right um but that doesn't make aging a disease right aging from my point of view is a fact of life we know that you can age better or worse and that it's very easy to age worse right so um people that smoke overeat are sedentary drink a lot of alcohol um engage in violent or dangerous activities have occupational hazards um live shorter lives right um can you extend lifespan i don't know that you can extend lifespan beyond a genetically encoded maximum but you can tr- you can try to age better what's the genetically encoded maximum maximum we think it's humans? 120 we think it's 120 years um there's not really very good examples of any documented people to live beyond 122 so it, it looks like that's potentially the maximum do you think that perspective of what you've just shared there gets less airtime because it's a little less sexy and it's i guess could be perceived as a bit more cynical than the other kind of um narrative being that we could extend lifespan lifespan by a considerable amount well you know i i'm all for healthy aging and um more people living into their 90s and 100 and and, and a little beyond that with vigor so that i think that's a that's a good goal um but um yeah i don't see any tech on the horizon that would really extend beyond uh genetically encoded uh longevity uh maxima um you know even caloric restriction is actually more problematic than people think it is because in the experimental environment the control group is ad libitum fed so basically overfed so you know in the, in in nature um mice would be scurrying around all night collecting enough calories for them to live 24 hours right in a cage they're provided with a big pile of food every day and they never run out of food and so the ad libitum the ad lib fed control mice um are actually gaining weight and probably have a shortened lifespan with respect to you know uh calorie restricted calorie res- restricted is more like a normal mouse right so so the the way the results are reported they will say caloric restriction extended lifespan of of these mice relative but i would yeah but i would say yeah compared to the control group i would say the control group of ad libitum fed mice and virtually all of the data that we have on mice had a shortened lifespan because we kept them confined in the cage and we fed them every day now you can 
you know, you can say, well, okay, but that's a good model for, you know, human that, you know, we're uh, ad libitum fed essentially, and we're less active than we used to be a, a thousand years ago. That's also true. But, um, you know, I don't see any um, drugs uh, that are being considered for lifespan extension as probable lifespan extension drugs. I see metformin as a drug for people with type 2 diabetes um, with evidence that it would probably um, blunt the beneficial effects of exercise. Rapamycin is an mTOR inhibitor. Um, mTOR is a regulator of skeletal muscle function and, um, you know, maintenance of our skeletal muscle is one of the most important things as we age because our skeletal muscle disposes of glucose and it keeps us, uh, together so that we don't fall, you know, in, in, as we age, I would, I would be more likely to take a leucine analog to support my mTOR signaling than rapamycin or a rapamycin analog to inhibit my mTOR signaling. I'm not signing up for any rapamycin tests. That's interesting because it's rapamycin is, I guess, one of the front runners in the, the kind of longevity conversation right now. Right. So again, in, in, in mouse models, you see that extends lifespan. It may be extending frailty, uh, however, um, especially in, in the human context. So it comes back to that trade-off. Right. I want to understand a little bit more about our cells and the aging process. And I think you mentioned before a loss or damage to repair mechanisms yeah. as being kind of central to yeah. that. Yes. Another idea that I've seen out there or a theory is the information theory of aging, that sort of over time there's um, D DNA mutations and epigenetic changes, and as a result, you you get a cell that has lost information essentially has uh lost its understanding of how to stay youthful at mm. least that's how it's um conveyed yeah yeah what are your thoughts on that theory um let me just wrap up one last thing about repair and and, and then and then deal with the information theory so um i i think i started out by saying that um you know one of my first contributions to aging which i didn't overstate was um, that NR extended lifespan in, in the yeast system. So I actually think that there is potentially a use case for NR in healthy aging. I don't call it a longevity drug in part because there's no way to do a trial that would demonstrate that. Um, and secondly, because, um, I'd like to be a little bit more precise with the language, but, um, our, in part, our repair capacity depends on NAD coenzymes. And in a lot of the things that decline in aging, like our ability to repair DNA and our ability to detoxify free radical species, that actually depends on NAD coenzymes. Are they some of the hallmarks of aging, those nine hallmarks? Yeah, I, I can't keep track with the hallmarks. Some people have seven, eight, nine, or 12 uh, hallmarks, but clearly uh, repair capacity is something that declines in aging. And, um, and NAD, NAD coenzymes are required for repair capacity. And there's a number of cases 
in which the NAD system gets specifically targeted by inflammation or DNA damage and, and, and declines in conditions of metabolic stress. So I actually think that there's a potential use case of NR in maintaining capacity as we age right. so does for healthier N aging. Does NAD plus go down in response to those disease states or do you think it's contributing to? That, that's a really good question. And um, it looks like it goes down in response to various insults. Um, like, for example, in a coronavirus infection, there's an innate immune response that attacks the NAD system, right? And then there's inflammatory processes that result from that that further attack the NAD system. Um, if in the conditions in which the NAD system are under attack, it's harder to repair DNA, it's harder to build lipids and nucleotides, and so NR would be expected to be protective against those conditions and has actually been shown clinically to, for example, accelerate time to recovery from COVID and you, we know it's safe and so forth and so on. So, so, so we know that, that taking uh, NR, which is a precursor to NAD+, yep. that will improve these repair mechanisms. Can we say that? Um, for sure, we can say that in animal systems. And there's something like 50 or 60 registered clinical trials of NR where it's looking for activity. We're looking for activities in humans um, that were suggested from animal models, like NAD declines in noise-induced hearing loss. NAD comes under attack in uh, a diseased kidney and in heart failure and neurodegenerative processes. And so NR is being tested in a lot of these things. Like in, there's a Parkinson's trial in which NR um, improves cerebral blood flow in a small Parkinson's trial, and that's actually being expanded now. How is how is NR different to niacin and NMN? Because they often come up in this conversation. Yeah, well, so nicotinic acid, uh, aka niacin, and nicotinamide were the first two NAD precursor vitamins that were identified in 1938. And then NR is the third NAD precursor vitamin, came out of my lab. Um, NMN is basically NR with a phosphate on it. It doesn't really make sense as an oral precursor because that phosphate has to come off before it goes into cells. But yeah, it, it's been popularized as a you know potential human supplement. But people take NMN orally, it gets converted to NR and then oh, really? it does the same thing as NR. Okay, but will it still have the same net effect on, on NAD plus? One would expect it to. Um, we have a rat study in which it didn't really perform equally with NR, but theoretically you would expect that NMN to perform similarly to NR. And what about just taking vitamin B3? Yeah, so these are basically three different kinds of vitamin B3. Um, the advantage of the NR um, is that the NR gene pathway comes up regulated in some of these conditions of metabolic stress when NAD comes under attack. So for example, in the mouse heart failure model, NAD is in decline and the ability of the cells in the failing heart to use nicotinamide go down 
and the ability of those cells to use NR goes way up by 40 fold. So there's a number of conditions in which the NR pathway looks like it has an added value because the cell damaged cells are turning on the, the NR pathway. But that, that, that said, um, there's a glaucoma trial that, you know, has used nicotinamide that, um, looks positive, I think in a mouse. And there was a large Australian nicotinamide trial in which nicotinamide was cancer preventative. Um, and so plain old, you know, uh, nicotinamide may have more value than people thought. It's just been kind of a low level, um, supplement or, um, enriching agent in flour and kinds of food so that people don't get pellagra. But we now think that as, um, you know, people are bigger and busier and, um, you know, maybe drink more and change time zones more often and stuff like that. And there's potentially an optimum amount of NAD precursors that's higher than the recommended daily allowance that was defined by FDA a long time ago. So are there any studies yet that have shown taking any of these precursors improve some form of like human health outcome or is that still to come? Yeah, mostly in, um, in disease models, like, um, there's a small Parkinson's trial, um, in which, um, NR improves cerebral blood flow. Um, there's a human trial with where people had moderately elevated blood pressure and their blood pressure was regularized. There've been multiple trials in which um, NR lowered inflammatory markers. Uh, there's a small trial in which NR improved body composition and increased resting energy expenditure in women. And then there's a trial where NR was combined with three other over-the-counter supplements in which it accelerated time to recovery from COVID. Um, that, that said, you know, it's, if you buy this, you know, commercialized NR, it's called true niogen. It says on the bottle, not intended to treat a disease or condition, right? So none of those disease claims are on the bottle because it's an over the counter supplement. So, so then why would you or I take it? Um, people basically subjectively report that, um, their workout recovery is faster, better, um, they get through cold season easier. Some of th these things are not easily measured. Almost everybody reports that their fingernails and hair grow faster. Does it depend on where your NAD plus levels are? Like how depleted are they? Is it something that people can measure? Should doses be different depending on that sort of status? I, I don't think that that is a very helpful construct because the easiest NAD to measure is in blood. And we don't find a lot of differences in people's blood NAD metabolome unless they have a mitochondrial disease and they already know they have a mitochondrial disease, right? So we, we found it interesting that in a human uh, mitochondrial myopathy, so a mitochondrial disease that primarily presents in skeletal muscle, 
that people are walking around with low blood NAD. That was not obvious to me that we were going to find that. Um, people talk about NAD declines in aging, but um, the blood from older people has pretty typical blood NAD. So I wouldn't say that there's a use case for people to be sending their blood out to get NAD testing. If I wanted to start that business, I could have started that business 10 years ago because we basically developed the technology for quantitative NAD metabolomics. But I don't see a use case for, for the consumer. So is for dosing that. the same for someone who is not living with a disease versus someone who is living with yeah, the so disease? That, that's, a, that's a reasonable question. So, um, you know, the, the supplement dose is 300 milligrams a day. The clinical trial doses, so the doses that are being tested for long COVID recovery and all of these other diseases, diseases and conditions of metabolic stress are typically one to two grams a day. So when you're kind of looking for the, the power of a, you know, disease treatment or a, um, you know, a serious effect, um, people are using higher doses. I got an email today. I think you'll find interesting. I won't read out the full details. It's literally an hour before you got here. Hello, Simon. This is such and such from such and such supplements. We recently launched a new anti-aging supplement with the most bioavailable and purest form of NMN in the market. Goes on to, to, to sort of ask if I'd like them to sponsor the show. But my point here is you're, you've already said this, but you're taking the position okay. that these compounds are not anti-aging. That's not the language you're well, using. Well, it's not the language I use because I, I don't like the word anti-aging. When, when Rob Fried and I um, basically created the true Nigen consumer brand, it had already basically been marketed. So that's Is your it, company. So I, I'm a chief scientific advisor to the company that developed the, you know, my... IP from, from Dartmouth of the uses of nicotinamide riboside. And, you know, so the, the stuff was already safety tested. It was being sold as an ingredient to other companies and they were basically marketing it. And they start, a lot of people started marketing it as anti-aging and all kinds of things. And, and then I didn't really like the communication around it. Um, neither did, um, did, did Rob Freed and he was very interested in, in the product. And we had long conversations about, you know, what's the tagline? And um, we agreed to age better. Age, age better is, is, is a tagline that I'm comfortable with. And um, so um, I think that it promotes, you know, repair capacity and that's a testable hypothesis. And, um, so w the, the way that I'm most excited about testing it right now is in a uh, repair of a shave biopsy. So initially I was thinking that we're going to scratch people or give them a mild burn. So now they're going to need to be compensated because we're actually giving them a mild topical injury. Right. And then, but we can follow the repair of that in a placebo controlled trial by photography, 
over a couple of weeks, right? And then in a very quantifiable way, we can see whether NR is promoting repair capacity. And this is oral NR. This is it's not oral something NR. That you can, we could talk do about topical topic. in a minute. Okay. But then I spoke to a dermatologist about this and he said, yes, we can do that trial. But do you have any idea how many shave biopsies that we do for the oncologists, right? And so someone goes into, you know, dermatology or, or, or something and they have, you know, they have something that basically gets shaved and sent to, to a pathologist. And um, generally, you know, there's no treatment for that. They just put a Band-Aid on it. So um, in the case of shave biopsies, we're not creating any new wounds. We're taking a population of people that uh, are having shave biopsies and we can measure the rate of, of you know, closing, closing up that. Some people get a cut. placebo, some get the NR. Yes. So that's how, how you would do an, an oral test. Cool. Now, full disclosure, I'm associated with another company now in Korea called Juvenis and that has a product called NR Lab Energy Cream and Energy Ampule. It's basically a skin cream and a serum, both of which have 2% NR in them. And I've just gotten back from Korea where we've obtained some human data on topical NR. So, and, and this has been, you know, this has been advertised basically already in- So in, it's absorbed, Seoul, Seoul, that Korea. compound? So it's, not only is it absorbed, but um, the data show there's about a 25% improvement in skin elasticity over eight weeks in participants. How do you know that it's the NR compound and, and not the, the rest of the formula? Oh, the, the everything else that's in the cream, right? So that try that test has not been done yet. Um, so um, in Seoul, Korea, as you know, has um, this kind of K beauty ecosystem there. So there's a lot of infrastructure for the human trials and evaluation and so on and so on. What I can tell you is that the data that we obtained were pretty remarkable data and that um, we're not aware of other products or creams that have shown a 25% increase in elasticity in eight weeks. Um, but we've not formally shown that it's due to our quote active. Right. Yeah. Well, I can imagine that could be potentially a very popular product. It's a big market. Yeah. Um, so we're, you know, really excited by, by that. And um, how do you manage, and I appreciate you've been very transparent with potential conflicts of interest, but this is something that I've been interested in this space because they kind yeah. of exist across the board. Yeah. And I understand why. How do you kind of manage conflicts of interest to ensure the the integrity is there with the science? So the, the thing is, you know, I don't like getting out ahead of my skis, right? So um, I, I, I would never make a claim that, you know, couldn't be falsified. And the worst types of claims are the things that, you know, can never even be tested. So 
um, how would you um, how would you make a claim that something extends lifespan in humans? You would what enroll people that are 105 years old and do a long enough trial to see the rate at which um, they're dying. Um, people that are 105 years old are not representative of the general population anyway. So I don't know how anyone could really be making claims about lifespan extension. Um, healthy aging is something- Unless they're extrapolating from animal models. Right, right. But then all of those data are pretty equivocal, right? And um, again, even when we go back to, um, to um, you know, caloric restriction, what's the control group? And, you know, has it been replicated? And what are the details of, of, of the study? Is there anything in the in the animal data that has consistently increased lifespan? Yeah, Gr growth hormone um, receptor pathway mutants greatly extend lifespan of these tiny little a uh, animals that 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 can't reproduce. Okay, so information theory of aging is that what you wanted me to yeah, go to? Yeah, I have. A couple more questions okay. <laughs> first, um, but I think we're going to get there yeah, natu right. naturally. Okay. Um, it must be pretty cool to to sort of wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and, and go, I discovered a vitamin. You know, I was minding my own business working on, working on an enzyme. I wasn't trying to dis discover a vitamin. I certainly wasn't trying to enter the, um, the, the, the world of longevity science. Um, I was working on the synthesis of NAD, the central catalyst of metabolism, you know, and, and an enzyme whose end product is, is NAD. But I was interested in it because it has two active sites and I wanted to know how they, they worked and how they communicated with each other. But when I looked at this, the kind of genetic system that my lab had built to figure out how the enzyme worked, I realized we could ask questions about how NAD is built in cells, how how the pathways uh, work. There's like a, a wiring wiring diagram of how you make all your amino acids, or humans can make twelve of them. Um, yeast can make all of them, and um, virtually, I think every cell has to make its own NAD from some type of, of precursor. And so um, we realized that there were some unanswered, unasked questions about how NAD is synthesized in yeast cells and that by doing these experiments, we could determine whether the received wisdom was true and correct and complete. And it was in the course of doing that that we found um, this NR pathway to NAD. When you say NAD plus is the central catalyst of metabolism, there's probably a bit we can double click on here. So um, when NAD plus levels are depleted, you've mentioned before that can affect repair mechanisms. Is that by affecting metabolism? And what is yeah. metabolism? I think yeah. if someone has a high level understanding of it, you know, my high level understanding, and I know it's more complex than this, is metabolism is taking uh, the food that we eat and turning it into an energy currency that our body can use to perform various functions. That's part of it. Um, that's the, um, the, the oxidative and bioenergetic piece of it, that you're taking 
food and turning it into energy, right? But how did how did you form f- from a fertilized egg to a you know six foot one tall guy, right? Lots You're, of food. <laughs> you, you you turned the food into Simon, right? So you built your body built all of your structures, right? Unless you have a, you know, uh, a bionic hip or something like that. Every part of your body was built, um, through metabolic processes. So that's the anabolic piece. And then there's a repair piece of metabolism. So I like to say that metabolism is converting everything that we eat into everything that we are and everything that we do. Every idea that you're having now also depends upon metabolism because there's ATP that's required for transmission of things and for recall of, of stuff. And so our metabolism is, there's nothing that, that we experience that, um, occurs without metabolism. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so your view is that as NAD plus gets depleted, one of the consequences of this is this alteration to repair mechanisms. Yes. Which affects how well we age. That'd be fair yes. to say. Yes. Not necessarily affects longevity, remains to be sort of explored. Well, I mean, it depends how you define longevity, but right. um lifespan, it, it, I should sure, say. It, it repair, you know, is your fitness. Repair is your function. And you know, w- one of the problems with you know, the, the longevity, you know, experiments is that, you know, if you're, if you're just looking at what, um, particular molecules do to mice, you could be prolonging their frailty, right? Or you could be, um, inhibiting their, their fertility, right? So you'd be inhibiting, um, or not improving things that you're not measuring. That's what I've wondered about the the amino acid restriction studies. You know, the the mice that are in those studies, um, are we appreciating their vitality and and what their ability would be to to navigate an environment outside of the cage? Well, you know, and and then when you put things in a human context, you find that. Um, you know, certain people, you know, say that they're miserable if they can't eat animal products. Certain people um, are say that they're miserable if they can't have sweets or they can't have wine with dinner. So now you're talking about, you know, um, restricting food intake or taking away particular amino acids, taking away carbohydrates or taking away fats and stuff like that. And you're, you're going to affect people in innumerable ways. Right. I think the researchers in that space would agree with that, but then they would probably push back and say, we should still explore the science to know what the possibilities are. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm for exploring the science. Okay. So where do sirtuins enter the story here because one of the prevailing ideas that I've heard yeah. is that NA depletion is affecting aging within the cell, potentially some of these repair mechanisms mm-hmm. through modulating sirtuins. Mm, sirtuins. Wow. So, um, so yeah, I, I told you that NAD coenzymes are the central catalyst of metabolism. Um, 
I told you that one of the first results that we got was that NR extended lifespan in yeast, that depended upon a gene called SIR2, right? So there's actually two models of aging in yeast, and um, one of them depends on SIR2. The other one is actually opposed by SIR2. Um, the one that depends on SIR2 was um, popularized by Garenti and Sinclair and, and others. And it's basically the number of times that a yeast mother cell can divide. You've so, explained this to me a number of times, and it's a bit to get your head around. Is it, is it hard? So <laughs> hard. It, it basically, if you imagine... Imagine that there's yeast growing in a flask, right? Because we're trying to make beer, wort, or, 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 or wine. So we have a flask of yeast, right? And then, um, yeah, we're going to get back to that flask. But let's, let's dip a, let's flame a, a metal loop, okay? Sterilize a metal loop just like Louis Pasteur. And we'll di dip it in there and we'll streak it out. And then we'll take single cells... We'll, we'll, we'll take single cells and, and array them on a Petri dish, right? And then every time that single cell gives rise to what's called a daughter cell, we're going to throw the daughter cell in the trash can. So you're only retaining the mothers. Right. You're only retaining the original cell that you put on this dish. And then you basically, you install a graduate student or a postdoc in front of a dissecting microscope for a week or two, okay? And every 90 minutes, the mother cells produce a daughter cell. The graduate student throws the daughter cell in the trash until the mother cell has divided 20 or 21 times. What's the rationale for that? Why would the graduate student be told to do that? Because what they're trying to find out is how many times the mother can produce a daughter. How many times the mother can produce a daughter? You can, you can answer that question, okay? The, 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 the answer is 21 times or something on average. And if you calorie restrict them, if you put lower level of glucose on the plate, the mother can do that more times, okay? So you can measure that result. The, the problem is, that if you go back to that flask and you try to look for mothers that have divided 21 times, they would have 20, literally 21 bud scars on them. You can do the math on um, the frequency of those cells in the population. Would you like to know what the frequency is? You've told me before. Yeah, one in five million. So, so the phenotype, the, the aspect of living we call it a phenotype. Um, the phenotype that this thing, you know, even presents itself in is a phenotype that only one out of 5 million cells ever experiences. Only one out of 5 million cells can ever be, um, it would, you'd have to have 5 million cells in a culture so why for there to be one cell like that. Why is connect the dots here so why is that important that it's that not. model but what you're saying is that model has then incorrectly been used to study longevity yeah it, it it's it's actually mind-boggling so um I, I really love yeast i spent a lot of my professional life working with yeast 
I purified a pro-hormone processing enzyme from yeast. So the enzyme that we have in our body that, that makes insulin and pro-encephalin is pretty much the same human enzyme as a, as a yeast enzyme that I purified in graduate school. So I have nothing against yeast, but yeast is not a good model of aging, especially that model is not a good model of aging because that's not a selected trait. So how, how did studying that model, in your view, from your perspective, lead to incorrect conclusions about sirtuins? And oh, well, so, so sir 2 is important in that model, right? And, and it, when, when you I say it's important, in, in that model, in that, that one model, in five million circumstances, sirtuins acts as a longevity. I, I installed my graduate student, Peter Belenke, in front of a dissecting microscope in 2007. And he showed that NR, you know, increased SIR2 activity and it gave yeast a longer lifespan. So they had a greater replicative lifespan when they had NR than when they didn't. But the reason that we didn't claim that that is suddenly, you know, makes NR a longevity drug is that that is a, that's yeast, not human. And that's an incredibly rare yeast cell. So does SIRT2 affect longevity in all of the other yeast cells? Uh, in, in the worst possible way, ironically. So if we go back to this flask that, that we have of, of yeast, because we're going to, let's say, inoculate it into some grape juice to make some beautiful Australian wine or California wine. Um, if we... Um, if we let's say we have a we have a, a lab you know at outside the vineyard right, and we have grown these yeast um, uh, cultures in uh, it's now uh, May. Let's say we've grown these yeast cultures in January, February, March, April, and May. So we have five cultures, right? And then we today we go into that lab and we plate the yeast for viability, right? We see whether what percent of the cells are still alive. It turns out if you delete the SIR2 gene, you get better chronological aging. You get cells that can, that can live for months or years as opposed to days or weeks. So if that is so clear in the research, yeah. My understanding is that the the research from those mother um, yeast cells right. led to a plethora of yes. ongoing research into sirtuins, companies yeah. set up, et cetera. Yeah. So how- How this happened. How does that if it's, happen? If it be, is claimed as a pro-aging gene from yeast, right? And I'm pointing out that it's one out of 5 million cells. And then Walter Longo, who's a very well-known- molecular gerontologist, molecular aging researcher at University of Southern California here in Los Angeles, showed that deletion of SIR2 is better for chronological aging. But his paper was not until 2005. Is that the same in humans as well? Deletion of SIR2 would lead to longevity? No, SIR2 doesn't have anything to do with animal longevity. The problem is that in the early 2000s, there were incorrect non-reproducible papers published in worms and flies that claimed 
that extra copies of the fly, of the worm and fly sir 2 related genes extended lifespan but the problem is that that's not a reproducible result so the the um the claim was that extra copies of the sir 2 gene extend worm lifespan that extra copies of the drosophila sir 2 gene extend fly lifespan but when independent research groups tried to reproduce those results they could not reproduce th those results and in fact when you delete one copy of the fly sir 2 homologous gene you get a uh, you get a fly that has extended lifespan when it's amino acid restricted so the sirtuin genes are not candidate longevity genes in animals. They were declared to be anti-aging genes in animals on the basis of research that has no value. In fact, the only value it had was to churn money on, um, you know, poorly interpreted and overhyped work. In one of your reviews, this is a quote, you said, the asymmetries between publication ease and rewards of positive versus negative data have been magnified by commercial and reputational interests that are deeply tied to tested and disproven theories. What, is, what does the kind of negative data have to do with this story? Yeah, so, um, so, okay, so let's go back to the late 1990s, right? There's a, very nice paper by Garenti and Sinclair. I like two author papers. Like some of the best papers from, from my lab have been two author papers. One, trainee and the boss. Okay. So there's a classic paper of Sinclair and Garenti, 1997. It's a true paper. Okay. The, the conclusion was that David Sinclair showed. When you say it's a true paper, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's been reproduced by other people. Um, the insight that came out of that paper is, is, is evidence-based, okay? The problem is it's also been massively overinterpreted, okay? But the initial result was true, which was that if you go back to that mother-daughter thing of the, where you, the phenotype occurs after 21 generations, the mother cell is retaining what are called ribosomal DNA circles, which you've never heard of because humans don't have ribosomal DNA circles. Yeast has um, ribosomal RNA encoding genes, genes that encode ribosomal RNA, or called, called ribosomal DNA, um, that are repeated one after the other. Because you need a lot of ribosomes, so you have, if you're a yeast, and so the ribosomal genes are arrayed one after the other. And then David found that those things pop out into a circle and the mother cell fills up with these ribosomal DNA circles. And the, the daughter cell is like a new cell because the mom kept all the circles. David found that that process of controlling the ribosomal DNA circles was dependent upon the gene called SIR2. That's a fact. That's true. And no doubt when um, my student, Peter Belenke, showed that NR 
extended yeast lifespan, it's helping those yeast mother cells control the number of ribosomal DNA circles. Okay, so that's a result from 1997 that's true. It helped us do something in 2007. Here's where it's not helpful. Expecting that that activity in an extremely rare yeast cell was had some fundamental thing to do with aging, that was simply storytelling. It was storytelling by Sinclair and Garenti and a lot of other people. Was that for the purpose, do you think, and I know you would have to speculate, but for getting more funding to do further research? Well, you know, we work hard in the laboratory. And so when you get a result, you want to maybe spend some time speculating of what the larger implications could be. Okay. But um, testing the idea that it might that a yeast cell would have anticipated the causes of death in an animal is a pretty big stretch. Um, um, but they're entitled to test that. The problem is that when they got positive results, they went straight to press with them. And they claimed that the SIR2 gene that they found Actually, they didn't discover the SIR2 gene in yeast. It was a known gene called Silent Information Regulator 2. But they found this, you know, aging phenotype of SIR2 in yeast. And um, then they tested it in, in worms and flies, and they published um, positive results that were wrong. Now, the, the, the problem is that someone else can't reproduce that and has a negative result. Well, it's very difficult to publish a negative result because you know the supervisor can say, well, maybe you didn't do it right. You know, you, maybe you're not as talented as the Grunty Lab. You didn't get this positive result. Or the journal editor says, well, that's not exciting. We're interested in exciting results. And um, so it, it might go to a sort of archival journal it might not be put into a paper at all. It might just be left in laboratory notebooks. All of those things are true in, in the Sirtuin field. There are things that were never published because they couldn't be reproduced. People spent a lot of time and treasure to try to reproduce these results. Um, they couldn't publish them because they couldn't get any positive results. In 2011, fully 10 years after reports started appearing in the literature, that worm and fly sirtuin, we call them now sirtuin genes, sirtuin related. Um, 10 years after the initial reports that animal sirtuin genes are anti-aging genes, a group of investigators that included David Gems, Linda Partridge, the best aging molecular biologists in the world, were able to publish a paper in Nature saying, fly and worm SIR2 overexpression does not extend lifespan. But that was very rare to be able to publish in a high impact journal like Nature a negative result. Yet even that didn't derail the sir story. The people, the, the partisans involved in this continued to say 
that sirtuins are longevity genes. They continue to say that they had activators of these genes. Resveratrol was one of the proposed activators. And nothing stopped this to the point that, um, you know, there was a biotech company called Sertris. And I know this very well because they were interested in my intellectual property. They had me in as an advisor. I was present at Sertris meetings. I saw the low quality of data being, you know, uh, examined at, at Sertris. They were looking at resveratrol as a possible CERT1 activator. They were considering CERT1, human CERT1, as a human longevity gene. And they basically sold this company to GSK for $720 million. And uh, as you know, um, you know, sirtuins are a failed, you know, drug target. Why? Because they're not longevity genes. There are no activators of these genes. And the whole hypothesis was nothing. There are more no than activators of these genes. Uh, resveratrol is not an activator of these genes. Higher NAD increases the activity of all NAD dependent processes. If David was sitting here now, how would he, how do you think he would kind of argue his position or his view to counter what you're saying? If you were to kind of steel man his position? Um, I don't know because when I have challenged him on all of these things, he's basically blocked, you know, the discussion. So I'm, I'm blocked on Twitter. I can't see what he, you know, says people send it to me. And then when it's, you know, quite egregious, I comment on it, but he doesn't directly respond to my critiques. He, re he repeats things over and over again that he found, um, he and others in the, in the, in the Garenti lab found sirtuins as longevity genes in yeast. He doesn't go into the details of whether it's affecting one in 5 million cells or the whole culture. He doesn't deal with that at all. He's maybe never cited that work. Um, he still claims that resveratrol is an activator of CERT1. I think I did read one of his papers and he did mention that it was in that replicative model, at least. But he, he won't point out that the phenotype in the replicative model is a phenotype of one out of 5 million cells and it's a dispensable cell. He, he, he doesn't deal with the idea that the targets of, of, of SIR2 are not conserved. He thinks that the worm and fly results are replicable when it's known that they're non-replicable. He, he, he acknowledges that um, there were early papers showing that resveratrol was a biochemical artifact where it was interacting with something called a fluorogenic reporter group. But then he's come around and at very great expense, he's developed a theory that resveratrol binds to pr two particular amino acids in human CERT1. The problem is that those amino acids in human CERT1 are not in yeast SIR2. And he claims to have discovered resveratrol using yeast SIR2. 
But resveratrol doesn't extend lifespan in yeast, even in that model. And the ability of resveratrol to activate the biochemical activity is known to depend upon this fluorogenic reporter group. So David's stuff has been falsified. So you do know? you think resveratrol, fisetin, uh, terastilbene, these kind of, I guess, similar compounds that uh, people have claimed are activating sirtuins, do you think they have any benefit at all through other mechanisms? Uh, there's no use case for resveratrol. Um, it's not, you know, bioavailable to humans. And there's been enormous treasure, you know, put into um, trying to find some beneficial activity of it. Does it matter if you're having it with fat, the bioavailability? It, it, it might, but um, uh, th there are not convincing human data showing benefits. Terastilbene is a more bioavailable compound than resveratrol, but there are human data showing that um, terastilbene elevates low-density lipoprotein cholesterol in human beings. And um, so, in fact, the company that, that I consult for, um, Chromadex, was originally a source of a particular formulation of terastilbene. We were selling it to a company called Elysium, along with nicotinamide riboside for them to put those two compounds together in, in a supplement. They had, they literally had my um, patent numbers on the, on the bottle of, of Elysium basis when they initially developed this compound. They had NR where the IP came from me and, and Dartmouth, and they had terastilbene, which is something else that was developed by Chromadex. When I looked at the human data that were coming out uh, on, on terastilbene use, it became clear that this is a compound that in a dose-dependent and time-dependent manner is elevating LDL cholesterol, bad cholesterol, right? Which associated with atherosclerosis and a lot of bad um, human health outcomes. And you know, I went to the leadership at Chromadex and I said, if we're in the you know, wellness business, we shouldn't be selling this stuff. You know, we, we stopped selling it. And so I don't think there's a use case for terastilbene. So if there's not a use case for these compounds that have been labeled as sirtuin activators and as, as you've spoken to, don't seem to even be activating sirtuins, you've spoken to the fact that in 2011, I believe you said that paper came out saying sirtuins are not longevity genes in where's, worms and in, in flies in worms and flies and they're also not in, in 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 mice so where's where's the field at today in the rest of the garante lab is this is that a consensus would you say most people are in agreement that sirtuins are not a key part of human longevity um i think it's only um highly partisan uh people in the scientific community that would argue that they are um, you know, longevity genes. I don't really see anyone active other than David Sinclair defending the idea that sirtuins are longevity genes. I haven't heard much from um, Lenny Garenti on this subject in a while. Um, I 
spoke extensively to Shin Amai at a conference um, last summer. He said that he doesn't really think that there are, he doesn't believe in the concept of monogenic longevity genes. So I think that David is kind of out uh, on his own on this one. Do you think you could have a conversation with him? Oh, or is it too to. personal? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I would love to. Um, so um, let's let's hereby invite him. Let's I'll yeah. scooch over. Well, I'm may, I'm may, I'm an Australian, so it, it might make it easier. Okay. Well, um, you know, I know that he spends time, you know, here in, in Los Angeles, and um, you know, I would love to to have a conversation with him. We we could find out what what his argument is in, in favor of of sirtuins. And we could talk about, you know, his his ideas about the, um, you know, the information theory of aging as well. Do you think, do you enjoy using Twitter? I don't not enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a frustrating medium in, in, in some respects. It, it, it should be fun. You know, it, it is fun sometimes. Um, it's educational. Um, it's also kind of argumentative, you know, and, um, yeah. And for the listeners, I should give some context because if you're not following Charles, which you should, um, what I'm getting at is there, I guess from the outside looking in at this space, I think a lot of people would see quite a heated sort of debate and rivalry between yourself and David. Um, no, no doubt about it. No, no doubt about it. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't like um, hype or overstatement. I'm uncomfortable with it in the NAD field. Um, and I'm uncomfortable when people, when, you know, PhD scientists, um, you know, ha- have, are telling people that things are very well understood when they're not well understood. I really don't like the idea that, um, you don't have to age and that we understand aging and it's now optional. Um, you know, I don't like, um, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that people are claiming to have reversed their age based upon epigenetic age tests. Um, so, you know, I basically try to critique things that, um, aren't evidence-based. I try to promote and um, support uh, really interesting science in the NAD world. When I retweet something and I say hashtag NAD Twitter, it means I like it and it, it's in my bailiwick. Does the the argumentative side, does it ever keep you up at night? Um, not Not often. I, I have a life, you know, and, um, you know, I have a, I have a, a dog and a, and a family outlets. And, yep. And, um, recreational activities and a very big job. And, um, so I'm a fulfilled person and I have a lot on my own plate that I'm trying to, to accomplish in understanding NAD and rare diseases and, and, and other things right now. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, when, when people, and, and you do, you know, I think that you do the same thing in terms of nutrition, 
you know, there's, there's people that are, that are out there that, um, for some reason got something in their head about seed oils or, you know, that, you know, cholesterol doesn't matter or that, um, calories don't count or, or something like that. And there, there are things that are just not evidence-based and, you know, if you're active in this space, um, you know, the, the best thing that you can do is you try to bring forward things that have an evidence basis for them. And then if you have a platform that you can use to um, try to protect the public against things that are harmful or that are highly misleading, then I think it behooves you to, to do that. And I, I try to encourage other other scientists to do this as well. When people are really, really junior, then they may feel like, you know, they they don't have a standing to, you know, critique a paper or so-and-so has a position at Harvard and and they don't, and so they're intimidated by that. But how do you how do you kind of this is something that I grapple with. Yeah. So there are people out there who I would strongly disagree with on a particular topic, let's yep. say it's seed oils or ApoB. Right. And I always have to remind myself to remain objective in all of the various claims that they're making and not just simply create a personal vendetta and then yep. discard everything right. that they're saying. So right. is that something that you kind of keep front of mind? Yeah, I, I, I try to. And, um, you know, and I, I, I know David Sinclair you know, David Sinclair invited me to um, Harvard many, many years ago. I spoke in the, in the lecture room at Dana-Farber. I've been to his office. I've been to his lab. I've consulted for, you know, his company. I met with him when he was in a little desk in Waltham before Sir Stephen moved to, to Cambridge. I know Lenny Garenti very well. Uh, Lenny Garenti asked me to consult for you know, uh, his company, I didn't, uh, agree to do that, but I mean, I know the players in, in this field and I know the science very well. And, um, you know, and I, and I think that everybody has a right to do the best work that they can in their laboratory and to try to, um, see where else it may have implications and, and applications. But when you start um, telling people that, um, you know, when, when you start telling people that NMN gets into cells when you know that it doesn't, you know, that, that's, I, I have a problem with that. And, you know, um, you know there's, there's, evident, there's evidence from the patent literature, basically, that, that David Sinclair very well knows that NMN doesn't get into cells because he's on patents where, um, you know, people that w synthetic organic chemists that work for him basically put modifications onto NMN to what's called mask the phosphate. So he's aware of the phosphate problem and they, they made derivatives of NMN that would allow these derivatized forms of NMN get into cells. And I'm sure that they discovered what everyone else discovered when you push NMN into cells with the phosphate on it, which is it's very bad for the cells. It triggers a process 
in neurons called sarmoptosis, where the, the axon and the neuron basically dies back. So the, there's no way that David Sinclair doesn't know that about the problem of NMN entering cells. But he's attached. Is it a problem or will NMN convert to NR and then enter the cell? NMN will convert to NR and get into cells. But, but David has gone on to various people's podcasts and say NMN will get into cells and that if you take NR, it's going to rob your phosphates from you or something like this, which is to use a Yiddish word. It's just, it's nonsensical. Well, I would love to have both of you on if we can make it work. I think the, the longevity community would love to see that discussion. Yeah. And if he wants to tell me that I'm he can do that. Um, but, you know, we've known each other for, for a long time. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, if he's clinging to things that are not evidence-based, it's not going to be good for his, you know, scientific career. Because like I say, what he showed with the mechanism of SIR2 action in a yeast cell in 1997 is absolutely true. But it's the um, over-interpretation of things and claiming that that applies to animals and to humans that is not evidence-based, whereas veritrol is not evidence-based and a lot of the other things that he's saying right now are not evidence-based. I want to get your perspective on the information theory of aging because we haven't, we've mentioned it, but we haven't spoken directly to it. So uh, I think a lot of people are under the impression that a big part of why we age is that a cell loses information over time through uh, DNA mutations, through loss of epigenetic um, information. And there's the idea out there, some of which we've already spoken to, you can do various things to help restore some of that information or slow down the loss of information. And then that cell can operate as if it was youthful. That's the idea of that I understand it. And yep. some of those things that are put forward to, to help prevent the loss of information have been, which we've already spoken about, things like activating sirtuins and, and then... The other uh, type of intervention that I often hear put forward is the use of Yamanaka factors. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So, so David's specific interpretation or development of the information theory of aging is epigenetic, right? So he's saying that there's some type of epigenetic drift, and that if you were to put in, can you actually first start just by? helping us understand the difference between epigenetics and genetics. Yeah, yeah. So genetics basically um, means, um, you know, the encoding of genes in A, T, G, and C. It's the hardwired genetic code um, that with which we are endowed. So you get 23 chromosomes from mom and 23 chromosomes from dad. And um, although immune cells rearrange DNA, you largely have the same DNA in in most of your cells your your whole life. Um, now um, cells differentiate into different types, right? So hepatocytes are different than neurons, are different than cardiomyocytes. That's because they're expressing different genes. And then um, there's also different epigenetic states, meaning the way the DNA is. Um, 
tied up in chromatin, in loose chromatin or tight chromatin, the genes that are expressed, there are different um, states of the DNA in which it is expressing different sets of genes. That's kind of the epigenetic mm, right. status of the cell. One of the kind of ways I've heard this Excuse described, me. and you can tell me what you think of this, is the genes is like all of the instructions for what a cell could yeah. do, and the epigenetics comes along and sort of highlights parts of that. Sort of. Okay. You could, we, we can work with that. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So back to this theory. So, 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 you know, he, he, he actually has a pretty big um, cell paper that came out in January or February of this year, 2023. Um, and I have a matters arising in response to it um, that's being reviewed by cell. The title of, of, of the matters arising that James Timmons and I wrote is um, the information theory of aging has not been tested. Um, the, the problem is the way that um, David set about to what he claims test the information theory of aging doesn't really test it. Um, he used a known DNA damaging agent. It's a restriction endonuclease. So it's an enzyme that cuts DNA. It's called IPPOI or IPPO1. And he induced this particular restriction enzyme to cut DNA um, basically throughout a mouse for 21 days. And um, it's known that if when you turn this system on, you can actually kill the mouse. He has prior publications in which he's shown that turning on this restriction enzyme leads to cell death, cell elimination, in which that restriction enzyme is turned on. And so turn on that particular restriction enzyme. It kills a bunch of cells through what's called a P53 process. Cells are eliminated, and he's previously published that that will prematurely age mice. So now he has a new paper in which he applied that restriction enzyme to every tissue and, and, and cell in the mouse's body for 21 days. And then later on in the mouse's life, he applied these Yamanaka factors to attempt to rejuvenate them. Which are? Yeah, Yamanaka factors, right. So yeah, we're getting into a lot of terminology here, right? <laughs> it's another language. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Well, do you remember Dolly, the first clone sheep? Yeah. Remember that? Okay. So this, this was before Yamanaka factors, but basically they took a, they took the nucleus from a somatic cell of an adult sheep and they inserted the, the nucleus into an enucleated um, egg from a sheep. Okay. So they took genetic information um, out of um, an egg, sheep egg, and they put the nucleus containing all the genetic information from an adult sh So you sheep. can get a direct copy. Yes. And at some low level, at some low frequency, they got 
that um, egg to behave like a fertilized egg and to develop into a, in a pseudo pseudo pregnant. Um, it's almost like IVF, almost like in vitro fertilization, except there's no sperm. They used the nucleus of a, this is how you clone an animal, okay? Is that you can take a, um, the nucleus of a cell and at some low frequency, you can put it into an enucleated egg and get it to develop. When you say okay? low frequency, what do you mean? Like maybe one out of a thousand, one out of 10,000. And um, so um, then Shinya Yamanaka um, and John Gurdon and, and others actually found that you can take cells and you can have a whole cell now, not just the nucleus, and you can express four genes called MYC, OCT4, SOX2, and KLF4. Um, o, S, K, and M. Um, and these are all oncogenes, by the way. And you can express these four oncogenes and at some low frequency, I said what's that again. An on, what's an oncogene? An oncogene is a gene that um, you frequently find activated in cancer. A gene, genes that get can get turned on in the development of a, of a malignancy. You put these four oncogenes um, into a, express them in the context of um, blood cells or fibroblast cells from a, an adult mouse or an adult human. And at a low frequency, you can induce pluripotency meaning you can get a cell from an adult to go all the way back to a state where it can differentiate into everything. It's pretty exciting. It is very exciting. There's no question that that's going to be medicine, okay. right? So for example, if, if, somebody, um, if somebody has some type of a liver disease, right, or they had a viral infection or they had some kind of damage to their heart and you were able to take like fibroblast cells and you could, you could generate, uh, you know, Simon's uh, fibroblast cells into Simon's induced pluripotent stem cells and then develop those into your hepatocytes, an exact match, then that's real regenerative medicine if you can do that. So you could replace a transplant. You could replace, you could, you could, you could, autologously, I think is the word, transplant a person with their own tissue that you partially, that you re-derived in the laboratory. So how does that intersect with aging though? Because that, that would, I'm presuming, result in a youthful organ. So, so yeah, you could regenerate, you could, you could replace an organ, a diseased organ. So if you could do that and you could do that That's throughout the body, if you could do that throughout the body, though, wouldn't you be overall making the entire yeah, organism? Yeah, so do you want to be bionic? Okay, so I, I'm not going to go into that kind of um, you know medicine. That doesn't specifically interest me. Um, but that, what I'm talking about, has a regulatory path. 
It has some successes. It's working. It's real science. But that process of induced pluripotency is conducted in the laboratory. And remember when I talked about installing a graduate student in front of a microscope? This again, this is installing a technician, graduate student, or postdoc in front of a dissecting microscope. And they have all of these candidate cells that were, that were treated with the four factors. Yamanaka factors. And some of the cells are dying and some of the cells are developing into tumors and some of the cells are forming horrific masses called teratomas. So what predicts that, how that cell will behave or react? It's, it's on a epigenetic landscape where anything can happen. Why? Because you're taking a differentiated cell and you're giving it the, these oncogenes to set its epigenome back where it's not committed to be a, a hepatocyte. It's not committed to be a melanocyte. It's not committed to be a neuron. It's going backwards in a developmental program such that it, it's at a state where you can then forward differentiate it into these different tissue types. Right. You've got right? to sort of so reverse weird, it out first. Yeah. So weird, weird things happen in that, in that process. And at a great expense with time and with skill and with elimination of these poorly behaving cells, you can isolate induced pluripotent stem cells. But you seem quite optimistic with regards to the potential use or utility of this in medicine. So that's yes. a barrier that you think can be overcome? That, that's, that's an area that's going to develop into medicine, whether that's longevity medicine or some other type of you know, transplant medicine. I don't know what, it one, what exactly you want to call it, but that's going to be real medicine. Now, what, what partial reprogramming is trying to do, however is taking three or four of these Yamanaka factors and expressing them generally with viral vectors, gene therapy vectors, in a living mouse or in the eyeball or some tissue of a, of a living mouse. And, and generally what people are reporting is that the epigenetic age of the mouse was reversed by these treatments. But that's to be expected because that's exactly what those treatments are supposed to do. And what we're interested in is whether it improves the, the mice functionally. Okay. And so the problem with the early 2023 paper from the Sinclair lab this is one that has 64 authors and it's on the, the information theory of aging, is that they prematurely aged the mice, not by tweaking their epigenetic age, but by literally eliminating cells. But they don't want to tell you about that because they literally didn't observe the mice for a month. And we know from their prior work that the cell death happens within the first month of what they did, which is treatment with this restriction enzyme. So they treated with a restriction enzyme that cuts DNA. We know that that leads to P53 induction and cell elimination, but they didn't report on that. They kind of 
put that under a rug. And then they came back a month later and they said, there's no mutations in this mice. There's also a lot of the cells are gone. The cells that experienced this DNA cutting were eliminated. We know that from their prior work. Then they did this Yamanaka factor treatment. They used three out of the four Yamanaka factors. And they said, we've rejuvenated the mice, but they didn't use any functional experiments to show that the mice were rejuvenated. The only thing that they showed was rejuvenated was this epigenetic state. So, but the epigenetic state- As measured by- age tests mostly, some gene expression, but that, that, that's a real problem right now. And, and that, some of my psychoms on, on Twitter, science communications on Twitter is, is targeted in, in this area because people are out there selling these age tests. They're telling you, oh yeah, you, you know your chronological age, but would you like to know your biological age? And then everybody has a kit. There's 20 different kits or so. And, um, you know, at cost to all of the other things that you could do with your money, they're going to take your money and they're going to tell you what they say your biological age is. But the, the biological age tests are not, don't give a reproducible result with each other, with themselves. They don't give a reproducible result with the other age tests. They're largely measuring inflammation and other things that are, that are reversible. And Further, um, there are experimental uh, systems where, you know, you come in with Yamanaka factors, obviously you're going to move those age markers because the Yamanaka factors are targeted on the things that are measured by those age tests. So they're in what I call a tautology space of their doing their intervention on a biomarker that's a hypothesis about measuring your age, but they're not independently showing that the mice are really rejuvenated. So it's, um, I'm assuming you don't really subscribe to the information theory of aging based on all of this. No, I actually, in my matters arising, I actually explained a way that they could test that hypothesis, but they haven't. They've done it in a way where it killed off cells that they didn't want to report on. So how, so how do you then go about, what's your theory of aging? If someone said, explain to me your theory of aging in a very succinct way. The basic theory of aging is that, um, is that we have a gene set that um, produces adults that are reproductively capable and that evolution doesn't care about us very much after we reproduce, and so we decline. And there are extraordinarily rare and pretty simple animals like um, jellyfish that don't decline, and maybe some hydra that don't decline, but that um, you know, complex um, sexual reproducing animals like all um, vertebrates have a gene set that maximizes our reproductive uh, capability and doesn't select for us much afterwards. And 
So therefore, um, we become closer to an open system. Like a closed system can oppose the second law of thermodynamics because um, we can take in energy in order to maintain order against chaos, right? Um, so, you know, physics says that um, entropy always increases, right? But physics is talking about um, a, a, clo a closed system. Humans are an open system that has a sun and the sun is growing plants and then we're eating the plants, taking in, in energy or we're eating animals that ate the plants to take in energy and then we're using our metabolism to keep our shit together, to use a, to, to use a word that you might want to bleep out if you want. And um, so we're, we're opposing entropy in our lifetimes. In other we, words, it's pretty amazing that we're sitting it's here amazing. right now we, doing we, this. We can, we can even grow. <laughs> we can increase in complexity through development and through our metabolism. But that also it involves a lot of taking in energy. Okay, You get to a point where metabolism declines. You can't keep on putting energy into the system. You can't maintain order um, to the degree that your body was fully and perfectly assembled when you were 20. And so we begin to resemble something more like the balls on a billiard board that if you leave them here in Santa Monica in 2023 and you come back in 2033, they're, they're going to have jiggled apart. They're not going to be wrapped as tightly as they were when you, when you left them here tomorrow. Okay. So we, we can't edit a sort of single longevity gene from your perspective. They don't exist. There's, there's no real evidence to suggest activating sirtuins is helpful. So what can we do with our time and our money to act on yeah. this decline and try and slow this decline down right. and to live better? Physical activity, nutrition, sleep, um, water as your main hydration. Um, I'm all for coffee. Um, you know, I'm on team breakfast. Um, you know, I function better when I eat in the morning, probably shouldn't eat too late, you know, when I eat 24 hours a day, but if you're sleeping, you know, at night, then, um, there's a fast in every single day. Right. I'm on team breakfast too. I think if anything, you know, if you were going to shorten the window, it would make sense to eat more earlier in the middle of the day. Than I later. mean, who's, and who's not going to have dinner, right? right? Exactly. So, so, you know, it would be unsustainable and it'd be miserable, but high physical activity, high mental activity, mental engagement, social activity. Um, I think vaccination is the tech that works, you know, um, if you, I, so I wouldn't quite say that there's no tech at all in longevity. I would say that there's, there's, you know, the, there's hygiene tech, you know, there's, there's soap and toilet paper and, 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 and sewage systems that promote, um, you know, public health. On the um, fasting bit, I know that adherence is an issue, but is there benefit if someone's listening and thinking, I actually can adhere to eating over three, four, five hours. It's something that works for me socially. Is there a benefit that's up for grabs I, there? I, I, I'm not comfortable, you know, promoting that kind of thing. 
I don't know what somebody's weight is. I think some of the people that are more likely to fast um, don't actually have a lot of extra body fat or body mass, right? I think that you and I are both aware of the literature that says that um, to, the, to the degree that time-restricted feeding um, limits caloric intake, it aids weight loss in weight loss trials, but ultimately it's energy balance that determines whether you maintain your weight, um, gain weight or lose weight. You, I think you wanna be at a healthy weight. I can't define exactly what that is, but you need good skeletal muscle mass to be at a healthy weight. Yeah, I, I have trouble defining that too. I think there's, it's, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Roy Taylor's work, but he has like a personal fat threshold. So I think it varies from person to person and probably comes down to, are you storing a significant amount of visceral fat? Right. I mean, there, there's, I, I think that people that get to be a hundred are not in, you know, the leanest, I, I don't think they're in the leanest decile. Um, they're, they're not um, people with a lot of overweight, um, uh, but they're also not in the leanest decile either. They, they generally, they maintain their skeletal muscle mass. One of them took up smoking when she was 116 or something like that, which is kind of funny. And some of them, you know, drink a little, but, um, generally there. I think people hear that and, and perhaps overlook the fact that she's probably an outlier. Oh, absolutely an outlier. <laughs> absolutely an outlier. Because we Jean, could Jean use those, those examples to justify just about oh. any behavior. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so, and, and, and I, I invoked, you know, energy balance. So that means that I, I'm not anti-carbohydrate or anti-fat. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, saturated fats are, are way worse you know, and, um, and refined carbohydrates are, are way worse than, than whole grains. But I think that not super controversial, unless you're on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I, I don't, I don't advocate any, um, extreme, um, diets. Uh, I don't advocate, I don't think that you have to do cold plunges or, intermittent fasting or anything like that. I think living your life is really important. Um, here, you and I took time for a two-hour podcast. Bless anybody that that listened to it. Maybe they listened to it on double speed. <laughs> right. Are but they still I, listening? Is, is there anyone there? <laughs> is anyone there? Yeah. But the healthiest people are probably not listening to too many podcasts. I think there's kind of a podcast disease. You know, I, I get asked certain questions on on Twitter that suggests that people are way down a rabbit hole of um, assumptions that were given to them by by people that don't really know that much and that opine too much. So I think living your life is pretty important. Yeah, do you see that as uh, problematic, over-focusing on sort of fine-tuning every aspect of your life for longevity? Yeah, I mean, um, the quality of life matters. So, you know, I, I think that, um, enjoying life, I mean, the people that 
put it this way, the people that stick to their, their lifestyle, um, you know, that have a healthy lifestyle that stick to it, enjoy it, right? People that dread going to the gym are the ones that quit the gym. People that enjoy going to the gym can keep going to the gym or they exercise out outside or they have a lot of animals that they need to chase around or, or kids that they need to chase around. So whatever it takes for a person to be physically active and fulfilled and to have a, a balanced um, diet um, is the thing to do. And where... Where does supplementation, if at all, come into this? So I think there's a use case for for NR. Um, you know, it it is the safety tested NAD booster that goes through the nicotinamide riboside kinase pathway. When you say safety, I think something people will think about is how long. How long are those trials when they're looking at adverse effects? You know, at, at this point, they are. You know, the the placebo controlled trials have gone around 12 or 15 weeks, so not super, super long. But um, since, you know, there is a registry for Niagen NR with FDA, F stands for food, by the way. Um, So supplements are considered foods. And what's the dosage that you recommend? I don't recommend a dosage because that's another thing that, you know, I, I don't think that you know, PhD scientists should be telling people that they should or shouldn't fast or take drugs that are, you know, off-label. And so the, there's, the, the bottle says that, you know, a serving is 300 milligrams. Um, I will also tell you that there are clinical trials that are done at a, a gram, you know, a gram or e- even more. So Showing you know, safety. And, and, the, and the safety has been established at two and even higher grams per day, per day. Um, and do you, do you get continual, like a, a, an increase in NAD plus as you ramp up the dose or does it hit a ceiling effect? Um, so the, the data say that, um, at 100 milligrams, 300 milligrams and a gram, there's a dose dependent increase in NAD metabolism. And that in the first week or two week and two weeks, you're getting your baseline level up to a higher level. And then by two weeks, it's higher. Eight hours after you take NR, your blood NAD is is, is higher. Can we you do anything with our lifestyle to increase NADH and NAD plus? Um, probably avoidance of all of the things that are the avoidable metabolic stresses that disturb it. So you know, sun da- so use sunscreen, right? Because DNA damage from the sun and from UV is going to cause pyrimidine dimers in your DNA and it's going to commit NAD to DNA damage. Um, Alcohol metabolism in your liver is going to disturb the NAD system. We've measured that in humans. So we've measured the NAD system in humans with alcoholic liver disease. Um, And... um, Inflammation elevates the NAD system. Getting a coronavirus infect, infection disturbs the NAD system. So there's avoidable types of metabolic stress, but there's other things like oxygen and sunlight that we enjoy. We need oxygen, but oxidative stress will disturb the NAD system. So there's, there's certain disruptions of the NAD system that are inevitable. 
And so NR basically helps you maintain. Is Chromadex looking at any other compounds or are there any other compounds that you would say there is a good degree of, of evidence to suggest that they can improve uh, health span, reduce this de- functional decline as we age in some way? Um, I won't speak for Chromadex. It's largely an NAD boosting company um, with some other things that um, we're looking at that that could be developed in that space. But, um, you know, I think that you get macronutrients from a balanced diet. You also get micronutrients from, from a balanced diet. So um, since NAD is the central catalyst of metabolism in us, it's also the central catalyst of metabolism, you know, in, in plants and animals. And there's lots of it in mitochondria. And so when you're eating whole foods with a small W and a small F to not make an endorsement. Um, you you kind of just did. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're just, you're getting NAD and it's breaking down into these vitamins and then your cells are, are making more. The, the idea of oral supplementation of NR is to kind of, kind of boost it because we now know that the NAD system does come under attack. Right. I think I'd like to get my hands on some samples of the topical version that you mentioned before. Sounds cool. (laughs) Uh, what are you wanting to accomplish with the rest of your career? What questions are you wanting to explore? Uh, there's there's a bunch of st- still unanswered questions in the NAD system. Like in we have this mouse model of heart failure where the cardiac NAD is going down and the nicotinamide riboside kinase 2 gene is becomes the most highly induced gene in the failing heart. And then when we when we give those mice NR, we can very effectively address their heart failure. So we can give them improved ejection fraction and so forth and so on. What we've not figured out is what's the endogenous source of NR? Like why is the nicotinamide riboside kinase 2 gene going up? We don't think it would be going up unless there were NR available to it. And we don't know what cell or what processes producing the NR. So that, that's, a, that's an unsolved problem. Um, there's some amazing effects of NR in lactation. You know, the female system is really amazing to me. And um, what happens during pregnancy and postpartum in the NAD system and what are some of the unique values of NR to a lactating female, that's something that we're looking at mechanistically and there are some uh, friends of ours that are at UC Davis that are looking at that clinically in, in human clinical trials. And then I've also gotten interested in some rare diseases that affect the NAD system. Um, there's a disease called citrin deficiency and there's some mitochondrial diseases that we've gotten interested in where the NAD system is disturbed. So a lot to do. And is there, yes, certainly. And is there any other um, labs or groups that are researching um, different interventions or compounds that are targeted at various aspects for the hallmarks of aging that you are interested in or you see as promising other than the sort of Yamanaka factors and um, some of the things we've discussed? Yeah. Um, I don't know. The, the hallmarks of aging itself may be problematic. I mean, 
hallmarks of aging is sort of like what happens in aging. That doesn't necessarily mean the same as the drivers of aging. And I don't, I don't know whether, you know, I don't know what we can do about the drivers of, of aging other than staying active. It's sort of like use it or lose it. Um, you know, I, I think I agree with, with, with Steve Austad, um, who wrote, um, a book that came out about a year ago, um, in, in which he argued that we spend too much time working on, um, the, the aging of short lived animals like worms and mice, we could maybe learn more from long lived animals. There are particular, um, creatures that live for decades and would like to better understand their biology in order to make insights into human aging. Because humans are the longest lived um, primate by about twofold. And, um, you know, in the, in the rodent world, there's huge variation in the rates of aging. So I think that, you know, some of the insights into aging might not come from, from worms or, or mice. Well, thank you, Charles. Appreciate you coming down right. today. Thanks. Down to Santa My Monica, um, sharing your perspective. It's been very interesting. Good, good. All right, let's talk again. Sure. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.